0: Um, Ollie is like blowing his coat, which I like brought him to the groomer and the moment we get out of the car like I'm like locking the door I have him you know on the leash and I turn around and I see everyone inside of like the groomer like the people at the front desk and stuff are all like turned around staring at me and I look down and all he's like pooping in the friggin' parking lot (laughs) I'm like, oh my god! Like, what is like, what is this? Like, he went to the bathroom right before we got in the car, and the rumor is like, literally like two—it's se- like down the road, like two seconds away. So I'm like, what is this? um and then like he goes just is like get he gets groomed i completely forgot he was there and so like two hours after i was supposed to pick him up i was like where's the dog like oh my god i forgot um which i guess kind of speaks to like ollie his quietness while we're at home because i was like where where'd he go
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc, etc.
0: If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show.
1: And give us a follow on social media at Pink Collar Underscore Pod.
0: What is our topic?
1: Ah, so our our topic of the week is poisoning and okay. slash murdering family members. Okay. Okay. Cool. Poisoning cool, cool. colon murdering family. I don't know something like that.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um. Leave us, leave us a review. Everybody,
1: leave us a review. Oh, I was going to pull up um, that very, very nice person. Let me see.
0: Uh, what nice person?
1: See, I should have had this prepared if I was a professional. Um, um, a cup of flour cookies on Instagram. Give you a shout out because she had asked about leaving us a review, but she has an Android, so... Spotify needs to get their act together (laughs) as far as having some type of, like, reviewing or, like, rating platform, but it was still very nice. Also, her Instagram is amazing and has, like, all these good-looking cookies on there. Um, So everybody follow her, and if you're in, like, the upper Illinois suburb area, go buy some cookies. Yes,
0: that sounds lovely.
1: Well, if you're new, leave us a review. We'll donate a dollar to the Center for... Oh my God, I'm gonna mess up. The National it up again. Center
0: for Victims National of Crimes. National Center for
1: Victims of Crimes. Okay. <laughs> my brain just does not like to hold on, retain certain information. And that is like one of those things that just like never yeah. sticks. Anyway.
0: Okay, so I am doing the case of Audrey Hilly. Audrey Hilly is her name. Um,. And so in June of 1933, Audrey Marie Fraser was born in the Blue Mountain area of Anniston, Alabama. On May 8th, 1951, Audrey uh, married Frank Hilly, becoming Audrey Hilly. Um, And so together they had two children, Mike and Carol. And so Frank worked a well-paying job and Audrey was employed as a secretary, Despite this regular and sufficient stream of income, the Hillies had little money set aside in savings because of Audrey's excessive spending habit. Not surprising, this led to issues in their marriage. Unbeknownst to Frank, there was an even bigger issue in their marriage. Not only was Audrey spending significantly more money than their combined income, she was having frequent sex with her bosses in exchange for even more money. Oh, (laughs) shockingly, um, that wasn't even their biggest issue. After some time, Frank and their son, Mike, began suffering from a mysterious illness. Mike's doctors attributed uh, whatever he was suffering from to some sort of stomach flu. Interestingly, when Mike moved away to attend seminary, um, his symptoms suddenly went away. Coincidence? It's the power of God. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Maybe probably not but maybe and so in 1975 Frank was feeling awful because of his mystery illness and he had to come home early from work when Frank walked into their bedroom he found his wife in bed with her boss which if you're going to cheat like okay I guess but like maybe don't do it in like your house or in your bed where like a family member could just walk in unless like i guess you want to get caught but i don't know um anyway naturally frank was hurt and disgusted with audrey's infidelity but he didn't know what he could do about his situation and so my guess here is that a little bit of like devout christianness um about you know don't get divorced, um, at any cost might've been at play. Um, and so he, he, so, uh, he and Audrey's son, Mike was now an ordained minister living in Atlanta, Georgia. And so that's probably a couple hours away. And so Frank turned to his son for some counsel and that was like May of that year. And so Mike came to visit just to, I don't know, help his parents, I guess. Um, and so Frank, after Mike went back home. Frank found himself suffering from nausea and tenderness in his abdomen. Um, and so, doctors uh, diagnosed him with a viral stomach ache. And his condition only got worse to the point that he needed to be admitted to the hospital. Doctors performed test after test, uh, which indicated that Frank had some sort of liver malfunction, leading to a diagnosis of infectious hepatitis. On May 25th, 1975, Frank died from his illness. Audrey gave permission for an autopsy of Frank's body. Examiners found uh, swelling of his kidneys and lungs, bilateral pneumonia, which I think means pneumonia in both lungs, um, and inflammation of the stomach, consistent with a diagnosis of hepatitis. So that was listed as Frank's cause of death, and no further tests were conducted. Audrey had secretly taken out a moderate life insurance policy around the time Frank initially uh, began feeling sick. And so she ended up receiving thirty one thousand one hundred and four. Thirty-one thousand one hundred and forty dollars after Frank's death, and so naturally I went to our dot com, um, and so with inflation, thirty-one thousand four one hundred and forty thousand dollar one hundred is that thirty-one thousand one hundred and forty dollars uh, would be considered over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in two thousand and one, two thousand twenty-one. What year is this? My I don't know. God, two thousand twenty-one. Um... And so in 1978, three years after Frank's death, Audrey took out a $25,000 life insurance policy on her daughter, Carol. Um, So about 100,000 in today's money. And so after a couple of months, surprise, surprise, Carol started experiencing similar symptoms To what her brother and father had Experienced in the past Her nausea had gotten so bad that she was admitted To the emergency room on several Occasions that following year Audrey gave Carol an injection of something That Audrey claimed would um, Help like alleviate or treat Carol's nausea but Carol's Symptoms only got worse And now she was experiencing extreme Extreme numbness in her arms And legs and so For me, I'm kind of like, why didn't you, like, connect... Well, you got this injection from your mom and now you're feeling worse. But I just assume, you know, I guess people are, Also,
1: who lets people inject people with... I've heard that before in, like, poisoning cases. I'm not sure if it's a case that we've covered or if it's, mm -hmm. like, another true crime case. But I've heard that before of, like, people just letting their random family members give them injections and then they get worse.
0: Yeah, I don't... That's part of... I'm like, I don't get one. I would never... I wouldn't let anybody inject me with anything <laughs> unless absolutely necessary, um, but definitely not a family member. And so I'm like, why? I, I personally feel like I would have connected like, hmm, what'd you give me, mom? But I guess, you know, people, we do also kind of live under this assumption a lot of times that, you know, our life bringer is not going to cause us harm. <laughs> and so um, I assume that's what's at play here. Um, and so doctors ordered several tests, but they couldn't conclusively uh, diagnose Carol. And so naturally, probably due at least in part to the fact that Carol was a woman, her doctor thought that the symptoms Carol was experiencing uh, could maybe be psychosomatic and referred her for psychiatric testing. Um, and so this is me gonna go going on like a mini rant, and I pulled a source for this. Um, so. The reason that I say that this is like problematic um, for several reasons is like first, her brother and her father experienced extremely similar symptoms, but at no point were those symptoms that her brother and dad experienced. Um, even though they weren't ever able to like conclusively say one way or another, they just used they're like, well, it's close to hepatitis. Um, at no point. Were they ever, you know, even, did they ever even suggest that it could be psychosomatic? And so basically, um, I guess in like plain terms, uh, what they're suggesting is that the symptoms were in Carol's head um, or possibly that she could be, you know could like making it happen. Mm-hmm. Um and so I looked up some like data or a source or anything. And so from a review published in healthcare, which is a like medical journal, um in 2019, it says females are more often given an incorrect psychosomatic diagnosis indicating gender bias and lack of research understanding on how the female body response to biological illness. A recent book explored the systemic problems of women's experiences of being dismissed by the medical providers. Uh, This included being discharged from a hospital emergency department mid-heart attack with a prescription for anti-anxiety meds, having autoimmune diseases and being labeled as chronic complainers for years before being properly diagnosed and having endometriosis um, and being told that they are overreacting to normal menstrual cramps illness uh, such as goodness yeah illnesses such as uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia are contested illnesses they are considered psychosomatic and not real illnesses they are often given labels such as hysteria hypochondriacal um, or all in their head and so not good very disappointing Um, But unsurprising for, you know, the patriarchy. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, while undergoing psychiatric testing at a Birmingham hospital, Audrey secretly administered two more injections to Carol and told her not to tell others about the shots. And so here I'm like, all right, first she was giving you a shot. She was like, this is going to help you. Now she's giving you some shots and she's like, don't tell anyone. But I'm like, if they're supposed to help me, why can't I tell anyone, mom?
1: Right, which again, if this person was extremely manipulative, which it sounds like mm-hmm. they are, they would give you no reason not to trust them. Yeah, and um, and also
0: she's extremely ill at the time, so like being in severe pain and in like a medical environment for so long, I guess, could also put you in a different state of mind. But
1: definitely, you're more vulnerable.
0: Yeah. Um, And so a month into Carol's hospital stay, she began suffering from malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies, and her doctor started suspecting heavy metal poisoning may be the cause of her symptoms. Suspiciously, Audrey had Carol discharged from the hospital that same afternoon. The next day, Carol was admitted to the University of Alabama Hospital. Coincidentally, Audrey was arrested for passing bad checks to the insurance company that she'd taken out the life insurance policy on Carol from. And so doctors at the University of Alabama Hospital focused on the possibility of heavy metal poisoning, noting that Carol's hands and feet were numb. She had severe nerve palsy, causing foot drop um, and she had lost most of her deep tendon reflexes. They also noticed Aldrich Mee's lines on Carol's uh, nails and conducted forensic tests on samples of her hair. In October of 1979, so more than a year after Carol's illness began, uh, the ALA... The Um, so in October 1979, more than a year after Carol's illness began, the Alabama Department of Forensic Scientists, um, found arsenic levels ranging from over a hundred times, um, For over 100 times the normal level uh, close to the scalp and zero times the normal level at the end of the hair shaft. And so that basically indicated that Carol was being given like increasingly larger or more doses of arsenic over a period of four to eight months. And so that same day, they had Frank's body exhumed and found between 10 times and 100 times the normal arsenic levels um, in his body. And so it concluded that both Frank and Carol had suffered from chronic arsenic poisoning with Frank's poisoning being fatal. And so at this time, Audrey was still in jail on her, um, for writing bad checks. And she was arrested on October 9th for the attempted murder of her daughter. The Aniston police even found a vial of arsenic in her purse. Two weeks later, Frank's sister had found a jar of rat poison containing, um, 1.4 to 1.5% arsenic. One month later, Audrey was released on bail, uh, then she booked a night at a local motel under a new name and vanished, leaving behind a note indicating that she might have been kidnapped. But police were like, mm, "Sure you were." Um, and listed her <laughs> as a fugitive. Um and so, and I'm like, curious, like what did the note say? <laughs> like we're holding I, her for yeah. ransom. Like that's they're like sure. Too funny. Uh, yeah. I don't she, know. Yeah. Tragic, but Like, what? What the heck? (laughs) And so on November 19th, there was a burglary at Audrey's aunt's house, and her aunt's car was stolen. Um, Some clothes were also stolen, as well as an overnight bag. Weird. Must
1: have been just some random... It was probably the kidnappers, you know, they wanted yeah. to, they held her a gun at her head and said, who can we steal from? Uh, we want to get some clothes, clothes that women's fit clothes. you. Yeah. Um, we don't want it to be suspicious if you're just like walking around in any random clothes, you know,
0: mm-hmm. it's a very so, smart move on their part. Investigators found another note that said, do not call police. We will burn you out if you do. Um, we found what we wanted and will not bother you again interesting these random kidnapper (laughs) or random burglars who are not um audrey how polite we Mm -hmm. won't bother you again (laughs) but we'll burn your house down if you do tell the police like what Anyway. so on january 11th 1980 um Audrey was indicted for her husband's murder Obviously she wasn't there But they still indicted her Um, Investigators then found that both her mother And her mother-in-law Carol Hilly had um, Significant but not fatal Traces of arsenics in their system When they died So at this point now Anyone who had died around um, Like in any proximity To Audrey um, Who died with like either undetermined causes or under suspicious circumstances they were all like wait did audrey do this um and so that includes sonia marcel gibson who was an 11 year old friend of carol hilly so um their daughter um, and she had died of undetermined causes back in nineteen seventy four. and she her body was exhumed and examined, and they but they only found a normal amount of arsenic. And so Sonia was one of many neighborhood children who had become ill after drinking beverages that they had been given. Um, like, during visits to the Hilly House. Um, And so, two officers who were also actually dispatched um, to the Hilly House um, after receiving, like, a 911 call about, like, a disturbance, also reported coming down with nausea and stomach cramps after drinking coffee that Audrey um, had offered them way back in the day. Um, So, suspicious. Don't Uh, drink coffee from random people policemen come on <laughs> and so although the police and fbi launched a massive manhunt um audrey remained a fugitive for over three years um during that time audrey traveled to florida where she met a man named john greenleaf Holman the greenleaf Holman the third,
1: the third? Mm-hmm. fancy right? evan's a third Oh. And I feel I didn't know that until we had like already been dating for a while and I saw it on his credit card and I was like I just died laughing. That was like the funniest
0: <laughs> Yeah. No, that's funny. My brother is a, like a junior and he always talked about naming his like kid the same. And I'm like, Okay, I guess. Um it seems a little pretentious to me, but I'm only the first of it's my get line. confusing <laughs> Yeah. Um, I agree Um, which, yeah, no, we had plenty Of, like, where people would call The house if they were, like, hey Could I talk to, and they'd say, like My brother or, um Like my dad's name, I would assume They're talking about my dad Because I called my brother Junior Or any other thing that I felt like calling him, um But not, like, his full first name And so I would assume they're, like, calling my I'd be like I'd They're not here, and it would be, like Like a 12 year old kid (laughs) like no my dad's not here and i would just like hang up (laughs) like why do you want to talk to my dad you child (laughs) um anyway so she met a man named john greenleaf home in the third and she introduced herself to him as robbie hannon they lived together for more than a year before they married um in may 1981 and she took his last name Together they moved to New Hampshire Audrey, aka Robbie, frequently Talked about her imaginary twin sister Terry, who she said lived in Texas. Um, In the summer Of 1982, Audrey As Robbie, left New Hampshire and she um, She had told John that there was like some Family business that she had to handle Back in Texas and That she wasn't feeling well so she's gonna Go see some doctors about You know, her symptoms uh, so during that time, she traveled to Texas and then Florida, and she was using the name Terry Martin, which was her alleged imaginary twin sister. Um, and during that trip, Audrey called John, this time as Robbie's imaginary twin sister, Terry Martin, and informed him that Robbie Homan had died in Texas. Robbie being his wife and so Audrey as Terry um told John that there was no need for him to come to Texas because Robbie's body was donated to science um after getting to know Terry over the phone John expressed an interest in meeting her so in November 1983 after changing her hair color and losing a bunch of weight Audrey. Uh, traveled to New Hampshire to meet John, posing as her deceased wife's, or posing as as his deceased wife's sister. So complicated. Um, and so, after an obituary for Robbie Holman appeared in a New Hampshire newspaper, it aroused suspicion because the police weren't able to verify any of the information that was in the um, obituary. So a New a New Hampshire New a New Hampshire state... A new hamster. Po- a new Hampshire A state police detective <laughs> deduced that the woman living as Terry Martin was in fact Robbie Homan, and Robbie must have staged her death. Um... John's co-workers were also concerned And so the co-workers and His boss uh, did a little Bit of research themselves and they Discovered that the Medical Research Institute Of Texas where Robbie's body uh, was handed Over for science didn't Exist they also discovered That the church that Eulogized Robbie's death um, Also didn't exist which Also I feel like John shouldn't you be like Weird like oh you guys had a Like funeral for my wife and you didn't invite me cool no Thanks. they donated her body to science don't you understand so there's no need i mean it sounds like they still had a ceremony it's a very ceremony whatever it's called um, um a service no, natalie
1: the church was made up so there oh, wasn't a service silly silly me. Oh,
0: I'm so dumb just kidding <laughs> um and so authorities actually ended up wrongly believing that Terry Martin was possibly a fugitive bank robber named Carol Manning which maybe one day we should cover Carol Manning Um, uh, at the very least they believed that whoever Terry Martin was she or whoever she really was she had to have been wanted on some sort of outstanding charges and so after Terry took a job as a secretary in Brattleboro, Vermont which is apparently near New Hampshire um, She was arrested Not really sure why she was arrested But I guess just like they were like You're suspicious let's let's arrest you <laughs> um, And so while being Interrogated by Vermont state troopers She confessed that she Was wanted in Alabama On um, bad check Charges and that her true name was Audrey Hilly. Vermont police Confirmed this with Alabama state police Who also let the Vermont police know that she was wanted for much more serious charges that she was well aware of, and so they had her extradited to Alabama so that she could finally stand trial. A, a conviction did not take long, and so she was sentenced to life in prison for her husband's murder, um, and 20 years for attempting to kill her daughter. Is this where Audrey's story ends? No. No, it's not. Oh my god, wait. Wait. <laughs> and so which i'm just like man this lady had a lot of time my god um and so audrey began serving her sentence in 1983 at tutwiler women's institute which was a medium security prison that's where they went wrong i'm like if this woman's already showed that she was like a like flight risk basically why would you put her in a medium security prison don't know um Maybe there weren't high security women's prisons at the time. I don't know. Um, It could be, or
1: they underestimated her.
0: Yeah, but I also am like, if she she like was gone, it wasn't like she was gone for a day. She was gone for three years and assumed multiple identities. Mm -hmm. Like you know, at the very least, she might have learned how to you know not get caught next time.
1: (laughs) Don't take people seriously about their pain. Women in particular don't take women seriously about the crimes they've committed.
0: It's the patriarchy again Mm -hmm. So um, So yeah uh, Audrey began serving her sentence in 1983 At Tutwiler's Women's Institute Which was a medium security prison Her husband John for whatever reason Was sticking by his woman And moved from New Hampshire to Anniston To be near her In prison Um, Which again I'm like what talk about devotion like this woman has been three different people in the time that you've known her and you're like i still love her so
1: yeah there there are other women in this world yeah my guy
0: yeah um and so audrey's experience as a secretary often got her assigned to doing paperwork and um you know guards considered her a quiet model prisoner because of her good behavior she'd gotten um She often got, like, several one-day passes to, like, leave the prison for the day. Like, just, hey, you were good today. Go spend the day out. Get yourself some McDonald's. Um, And, like, all the time she would always return on schedule no issues and so they had no problem giving her like instead of a one-day pass you know a three-day pass and so um that's what happened in February of 1987 um she'd gotten a three-day pass so that she could visit John and they spent a day at an Aniston motel um then John left for like several hours just to go take care of a couple things and when he got back Audrey had disappeared was she, she kidnapped? Left, no. Um, <laughs> she left a note for John asking for his forgiveness. Um, and I guess she was hoping that he would, like, you know, stick by her and, like, not call the police. But he was just like, um, call on the police. Which, you know, that's, another thing, that's the last straw. Good to know that. I'm also curious. I mean, I wonder if he was just like, oh, I'm going to call the police so he could, so they could bring her back to me but could, could I also think it's interesting like thinking about that you know you know he did move to Aniston to be near her but she like has life plus 20 so like you know that's a long time to just you know live near Hang prison out, to yeah. be with your yeah so I don't know it's interesting to me that he uh, was so committed I guess but good on him I guess if that's what he wanted um Which I also, thinking about it, since she clearly has a very manipulative personality, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some, like, if he was just kind of under her spell a little bit, um... Anyway, so this time Audrey wasn't missing for long Four days after she vanished from the motel She, um, apparently had been, like, crawling through the woods Um, she had been exposed to some harsh elements Because it was raining nonstop for those four days And so temperatures were dropping, like, below, like, you know Or at the, like, low 30s and below that Um, so she, you know, wasn't doing well Her body, um Like she was suffering from like hypothermia and all sorts of other things. Again, she was crawling through the woods and um, she saw a house. And so she stumbled on the back porch, porch of the house and it was owned by an Aniston woman who ironically had actually known Audrey from elementary school. So it's unknown if it was intentional that she stumbled upon this woman's back porch or if it was just a coincidence. Either way, the woman did not recognize Audrey. Again, they knew each other in elementary school and now they were not elementary school kids. Um, And Audrey had looked like really ragged and, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. That other fun stuff, and so she immediately called the police, letting them know that a homeless woman in need of help had stumbled on her porch. Um, police got there, and so did paramedics, and they so and they took um, Audrey to a local hospital uh, so that she could undergo emergency treatment for hypothermia. Um, and Audrey then had a heart attack and died. That is the case of Audrey Hilly. Okay, what an interesting <laughs> ending there. Um, what a roller coaster! Um, yeah, I'm like there's so many crimes in this one. I'm just yeah, I'm in awe of her determination, um, and I'm in awe of the Aniston correctional like people for I don't know giving her a three day pass. Right. That that just seems.
1: Shocking to me. I think with her history, I'm just totally surprised that they would. I because I think day passes or like couple day passes is probably a wonderful thing for nonviolent people who have committed crimes that are nonviolent. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's probably really messed up to be in jail for or prison for a long time and like forgetting what the real world is like. Yeah. Um and it can be like really overwhelming to go back out. But for people who have intentionally like first degree murder people, I'm not so sure if, if I want people
0: Yeah, you know, I mean out in the world. <laughs> like she's done quite a bit of fraud in terms of getting money she's changed her name multiple times faked her death like you know gotten like jobs with like effectively no true identity been married with no true identity which is another form of fraud um murdered like multiple people that she was related to or at least tried to murder a lot of people like maybe keep it's a bit, it's a bit more much tabs on her <laughs> i don't know i don't know how else to explain it um i don't really understand the rationale for um the level of leniency for her um but yeah maybe that's just
1: it that's how she like convinced all these people that she was good is because she was just that good at manipulating people to the point where even people in the the prison or jail were like yeah she's fine
0: she totally possible go. that's that's definitely um a, a big possibility it sounds it definitely sounds like she had a, a largely manipulative personality so yeah unsurprising if you know the prison were all like prison guards and other people in charge were also fooled um john fooled um her imaginary twin sister terry fooled <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> Well, like, yeah, that,
1: that certainly was an interesting one. Yeah. The fact that it was a hometown case for
0: Jerome. Yeah, he was like, um, had he, he ever like, heard no. of that
1: family or even know he got it? He was like, the Hilly, do I know any
0: Hillies? And I'm like, that's such an Alabama thing where they're like, oh, the Johnsons. Oh, yeah, I know the Johnsons.
1: All right. So my case today, I'll have to give a shout out to this author, Tori Telfer, um, wrote the book Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. When I saw that in the bookstore, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to have this book. So um, all of this information is actually from this book because she did such a wonderful job. Um, And so my retelling of it isn't as detailed so if you're interested in hearing more about this case definitely check that book out um but (laughs) Evan just came in and scared me I'll wait he needed to get a shirt okay um Also, just, you know, I took uh, three to four years of French uh, back in the day, so my pronunciations are going to be at an expert level for this case, and I I hope that you hold me to those pronunciations. Um, So, Marie-Madeleine D'Aubre was born in Paris in 1630. Her father was a civil lieutenant, meaning he was rich, and he also had a lot of influence. She had two younger brothers and a younger sister. Marie was described as, quote, not tall, but exceedingly well formed, <laughs> <laughs> which is how I can hope to be described. She was a shapely,
0: um, shapely woman, I guess.
1: Yes, she had bright blue eyes and chestnut hair. Marie had exceptional penmanship, and in her letters, later reviewed by historians, they found her spelling was flawless. Meanwhile, I misspelled chestnut in penmanship, and thanks to Google Docs, like, caught that, but I definitely wouldn't have done well back in, back in the day. <laughs> Not as well as Marie. Um, so Marie's younger sister would end up joining the Covenant, while Marie started to be hypersexualized at a young age. Rumors started that at the age of seven, she engaged in sexual behavior with her five year old brother. Um, I don't think it's the most unusual thing in the world for kids to engage in sexual behaviors at, at young ages, um, especially if they aren't taught about their bodies or what is and isn't appropriate for their age level. You know, these kinds of things can happen. Um, but unfortunately, I think a likely explanation for this behavior is previous sexual abuse. I don't think it's uncommon for kids to reenact um, things that were perpetrated on them. So, or it could also just be like a very unfortunate rumor. It reminds me of The Great, the, the TV show that I told you to watch, but accidentally told you the wrong name. Yes. Um, where there was rumors that she had sex with a horse, which it's like so completely ridiculous, but everyone was like... Oh, yeah, she totally had sex with the horse. Um, Good show. Everyone should should watch it. The Great, not Mm -hmm. (laughs) Catherine the Great. Um, (laughs) So anyway, Marie's entrance into the high Parisian society sounded exactly like an episode of The Great. So I'm going to keep talking about the show. Sorry. The society was described as being full of utter heartlessness and a complete lack of moral fiber. The nobles liked to gamble for days without sleeping, and they loved their gossip, would have public affairs, drink a lot of ice champagne, and also plotted the downfall of their enemies. In spite of all this, the nobles felt like they were just better than everyone else. Their wealth and status meant that they were the best kind of people. Sure, they cheated on their spouses and gambled and gossiped, but none of their behavior was like illegal they weren't breaking any laws um at the age of 21 marie hitched her wagon to antoine Gobelin, whose family was quite wealthy from his dye manufacturing fortune he was loaded and marie had a pretty sweet dowry With their combined wealth and status, they were now one of the it couples in Paris. Now, back in the day, marriages had less to do with love and more to do with building some type of partnership. It was more like a business transaction, so it wasn't unusual when they both started taking lovers after their wedding. And they weren't exactly sneaky about it. Again, this behavior wasn't illegal, but people were definitely gonna talk about it behind your back. Also, according to rumors, Antoine was a weak man who didn't care about uh, Marie getting some on the side as long as he was able to pursue affairs of his own, which I don't know why that would make him weak unless there's like a double standard that men are allowed to have affairs, but women aren't? Yeah,
0: I mean, probably.
1: yes, so perhaps he was not weak, but they were just they just had an understanding. who knows? Um, but so Marie fell in love poured with an army officer named Godin de St. Croix, whose relatives would later invent the La Croix beverage. April Fool's, just kidding. I just thought it was funny, and I like La Croix. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> um, apparently, he was one of those bad boys that was handsome and smart, and he could talk about all kinds of topics like theology or chemistry. Murray was quickly slept away by... slept away... <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, swept away and swept away by Godine. It's like you just um, described Jess from Gilmore Girls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was yeah. knowledgeable, kind of a bad
1: boy. <laughs> yeah, picture like her actual husband will be like Dean in your heads, and like this will go Dean will be a uh, Jess. Um, <laughs> so she was quickly swept away, and they embarked on a whirlwind romance. Her husband didn't care what she was doing. He was, you know off having his own affairs but her father and brothers were not so happy about this relationship they were embarrassed that Marie was the subject of all the hot gossip so back in those days if you didn't like someone that was bringing shame to your family and you were high status you just simply got the king to sign a lettre du cachet for their arrest so marie and godin were out in their very fancy expensive carriage just about the town when godin was arrested and taken to the bastille marie was enraged how dare her father take away her lover in public this act appeared to be what tipped marie over the edge Godin was in prison for about six weeks and while he was there he met an italian poisoning expert named a Diggio Elixir. Supposedly, poisoning was quite the rage in Italy and was viewed as a way to get out some of your pesky feelings of hatred and vengeance. Just gave you an outlet for that. Uh, Godin may have learned about the art of poisoning from Elixir, but Marie also would later say that he learned about poison from Christoph Glaser, who was an apothecary to the king and a celebrated scientist. Um... He was really smart but he was also kind of extra this christoph um for instance one of his recipes called for the skull of a man dead of a violent death um just seems like overkill at that point i'm sure that there was no you know kind of scientific reasoning for that um but at that time Just about anyone could have picked up some arsenic or antimony at the local apothecary. It wasn't like it would have been that hard to poison someone if you really wanted to, but Godina Marie wanted to go the extra mile. Their rise to become poisoning experts was a part of the theatrics. They didn't just want to poison the family members. They wanted to create this twisted sort of horrific unfair tale ending. (laughs) Not only was Marie furious over the arrest of her lover, she was also running low on money. Turns out, Godin liked to gamble and had started to accumulate a lot of debt. Marie wanted revenge, and inheriting her father's fortune would be the icing on the cake. When Godin was finally released, he started telling everyone that he was an alchemist. Marie and Godin began working together to find the perfect formula so they could make her father's death look like the result of natural causes. To get the formula just right, Marie started bringing poison jams and sweets to the patients of Hotel Dia. Dieu, um The public hospital located next to the Notre Dame. Nobody suspected her, not even the police. Why would this, like, super hot, curvy noblewoman with big eyes try to poison dying, like, poor people and, and beggars? Perhaps if they looked a little bit closer... They would see that Marie had also started testing her poisonous concoction on concoctions on her own servant girls by feeding them gooseberries and ham that had been poisoned. One girl ended up with a burning sensation in her stomach and had health problems for three years. Um, In 1666, Godin and Marie were confident that their formula was perfected. They believed the poison would be undetectable, but also highly effective. It took eight months and nearly 30 poisoning attempts to finally kill her father. One of the servants had been recruited to give her father just enough poison to start affecting his health. She stood by her father's side through months of vomiting, extreme stomach pain, and horrible burning sensations on his insides. The amount of pain he was going through never phased Marie. She would not change her mind. She never like backed out and was like, oh, this is too much, this is too much torture. Um, So, on September 10th of 1666, Monsieur D'Arbray died, and according to his doctors, the cause of death was gout. Gout runs in my family, so if you ever find me dead, hopefully it's not from that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, His estate was divided up between the four children. Instead of being smart and saving their money or... Investing it, Marie and Godine had blown through their portion of the money in just a few years. They were soon back where they started. Broke, desperate for cash, and blocking out all the haters who didn't like their relationship. They had come up with a new plan to get some money. Were they gonna go out and get a job? No, they wanted to do what they knew best. Poison some family members. Her two brothers Solid. <laughs> lived together. I know, great plan. Um, To me, I'm like, wouldn't it be easier to just get a job, like, more sustainable? It sounds like this is a
0: lot of work. Yes, I mean, same with Audrey Hilly. (laughs) So many other things to do. So... Her two brothers
1: lived together but her sister-in-law hated her for good reason um it seemed like we know that now anyway marie would not be able to access the kitchen to sprinkle poison on their food because a sister-in-law was like she's not allowed in there um so she decided to plant another servant he went by the name of la chausse he was the perfect candidate he had a criminal record he had already worked for Godin. He had it all. Um, So, he also had all kinds of delivery options for these poisons since they had done, you know, like all these testing. So, he spiked various drinks. He cooked an elaborate meat pie. And the brothers were like, ah, yes, meat pie. But soon after they started eating, they complained of burning sensations in their stomach. This is the same as your case, where I'm like, wouldn't you be like, wow, it's weird that we all are coming down with the same symptoms? Like,
0: yeah exactly but wonder what that could be back then i also think knowledge was a little different
1: (laughs) true and i feel like people were getting sick like all the time of random ailments yeah um but like their father their brothers endured months of torture by poisoning they were vomiting unable to eat pooping blood lost their eyesight dropping weight at an alarming level they had also become so stinking and infected that it was hard to be in the same room as them like they they were smelling oh, bad yeah they just like their bodies were like <laughs> blah <laughs> nice. again marie didn't bat an eye over their suffering <laughs> Which were, should
0: have been suspicious in and of itself <laughs> like
1: well she was like sitting by their side you know she wasn't like Nah, whatever but I mean, she might have been but yeah she was true. there but like to me i would feel like if you saw someone that you well maybe she didn't love them but in your family like greatly suffering and you knew that you could stop the suffering she was just like "Meh, keep poisoning him it's fine <laughs> um yeah because they were just a part of the system that forced her to marry a super lame husband and got upset with her for seeking out her true love Her older brother passed away first, with her younger brother dying soon after. The doctors performed autopsies and saw their stomach and livers were literally black and their intestines were falling apart, which is probably why they smelled really bad. And they suspected poison, but they didn't suspect La Chaussée, who had done a really great job playing faithful servant. And Marie had been miles away at the time of their death. So the doctors were like, oh well. They didn't do anything about it. La <laughs> Chaussée was even given a bonus after their death for being such a loyal servant. One would think Mar- Marie would be like, awesome. I have all this money. No one suspects me. Better cool it with the poisoning. No, Marie was just getting started. She wanted to poison her sister and her sister-in-law. She also wanted to poison her husband so she could finally be with Godine without judgment. It appeared Godin was not a huge fan of this idea, so Marie would poison her husband, and then Godine would slip him the antidote. And this happened about five or six times. She would poison him, Godin would unpoison him, And so he would end up surviving all those poisoning attempts, but I can't imagine the havoc it wreaked on his body to be, like, going back and forth with poisoning.
0: Like, also, what did she think people would think if, like, everyone around her was dropping, like, flies from weird, mysterious illnesses?
1: Yeah, it was just a plague. I don't know. 1600s. True. Also, they didn't have, like, internet or, like, effective way of... Like keeping track of documents and or like
0: news. As usual, I will argue that if they had Netflix, no one would be committing <laughs> these crimes.
1: <laughs> Probably. Um, Marie's life was quickly falling apart. Marie wrote Godin a letter threatening to poison herself. She had also taken up another lover after her brothers died, but this guy was not so on board with all the murdering, and he would end up turning against her. His name was Jean-Baptiste Brincourt, and he was hired as a tutor for Marie's children. JB thought Marie was super hot, but he was also quite terrified of her, and he was worried she might try to kill him. One night he walked by and saw Marie hiding Godine in the closet, and he was like, okay, that's weird. And later that evening, Marie tried to get JB into bed, and he saw through her plan immediately, and he just, like, went to open the closet door, and Marie threw herself in the way and was like, no, don't look in there. But he opened the door anyway, he saw Godine, and he was like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. So Godine ran away. And Marie threw herself on the floor, sobbing and threatening to poison herself if JB left her. And he was like, I'd be like, okay,
0: <laughs> go
1: for yeah, it. Yeah, he was like, no, I, I still love you. <laughs> Don't do that. But he was just making a plan to leave in the morning. Um, so upon some reflection of her life choices, Marie realized her relationship with Godine had ruined her life. She gave him everything she had, betrayed her family, and now she was left with nothing. Even worse, Godin died in sixteen seventy-two, leaving Marie to face her crimes all on her own. According to legend, he was whipping up some poisons in his secret laboratory when the glass mask he was wearing for protection shattered. This was not the case. It turns out he just died from illness. Um, I was gonna but, say, I mean,
0: what a what a great like. Um, story or um, PSA for wearing masks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't
1: get the glass mask, guys. (laughs) Um, But, so no one had suspected him as a criminal and he died in good standing with the church. He wasn't suspected of being a bad guy, um, but he did have tons of debt. So, the court sent a commissary to get his affairs together and they came across a scroll that said my confession. And the dude was like, well, this is none of my business. And he just threw it into the fire. But he did come across a box full of vitriol, corrosive sublimate powder, and opium. And the note attached to the box just said, give this to Marie in event of my death. But if she dies before me, just burn all this. Like, you didn't see anything. The commissary turned the box over to the police. Uh, They thought it was kind of suspicious when Marie rushed over and was like, Hey, guys, can I uh, just get that box of poison? I mean, the secret box. Um, she was acting very sus, so the authorities tested the box's substances by feeding them to some animals. Would she think there'd be a better way of doing it? <laughs> but all the animals died within a few hours. So... Once her sister-in-law, the one who hated her all this time, caught wind of the mystery box of poison, she decided to go on a legal rampage to avenge the death of her husband. La Chaussée was also thrown in jail, and Marie fled the country. La Chaussée was found guilty before he even confessed. No surprise there, because he was a lowly servant with a criminal record going up against a noblewoman. They sentenced him to execution after a bit of torture. They pinched his nose shut, stretched his body backward, and dumped excessive amounts of water down his throat. They then put his legs in between planks and drove wooden wedges very slowly into the space between his legs and the plank, causing his calves to shatter. He didn't confess during all of the torture, but he did confess once he was released. Supposedly, this was common with torture victims. Something about being free from the pain um, just led them to, like you know they were so relieved that like their confession would just come out yeah. um so then they tied him to a wheel and beat him with iron bars and left him to bleed out as his punishment so marie avoided capture for exactly 3 years and 1 day which is like a very similar length of time to your person yeah. maybe there's something about that like 3ish year mark that they start you just... to get a little
0: sloppy and... yeah
1: yeah <laughs> So her sister, the same one she planned to kill, um, which she, to my sisters listening to this, this would not happen for you if you tried to kill me and ran away. Um, but she was super cool, I guess, and sent her small amounts <laughs> of money. Um, but she died. Don't get in... any bright
0: ideas, Rachel's sisters.
1: <laughs> yeah, guys, nah, no, they would they would never kill me. Um, so she died in nineteen six or nineteen. Uh, I'm like, can't read words. Sixteen seventy five. Um. I just, like, skipped hundreds of years. Anyway, so Marie rented a room in a convent in Liege, which was full of French troops at the time. So word got around, and the Parisian authorities eventually just, like, swung by to pick her up. Um, Marie tried to kill herself before trial by swallowing pills and mouthfuls of crushed glass, which to me, I'm like, why wouldn't you just poison yourself? Maybe she didn't have access to poison, but it seems like a terrible way to go. Um, but there was also a rumor that she tried to impale herself, not in her eye, not in her mouth, not in her ear, not in her nose, and not in Turkish, Turkish fashion, which means up the butt. So, like, she tried to impale herself <laughs> what does in that another role. Why does
0: Turkish mean up the
1: butt? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. So, authorities found, um in her room they found a written confession like her lover it appeared um that she needed to like get her crimes out somewhere to relieve some of the guilt she confessed to killing her father and brothers letting la Le chausse die for her crimes attempting to poison one of her kids burning down a barn planning to kill her sister and trying to kill her husband she confessed that godine had been the father of two of her children and she also had another child with her cousin. And she nice. also confessed to engaging in sexual activity with her brother at the age of 7 and committing incest 3 times a week about 300 times total. Um so she did deny the whole thing in court saying it was a feverish confused confession brought on by being alone in a foreign <laughs> country. Um but a lot of it seemed true. I don't know. There's just I suspect like a history of abuse. Probably at the hands of her father, so I don't know if that changes anyone's opinions about anything, but since she was of higher status, they needed a lot more proof of her innocence. You know, the person who was a servant, they didn't really need any proof. High status, need a lot of proof. You know, I'm really glad that that doesn't happen in today's court systems. Oh, yeah. Um, Never, never something we left in the past thank goodness but so like even her confession wasn't enough to convict her um in fact her lawyer argued there was no way she could have committed the crimes because of her advantages of quality birth and fortune it was her lover jb's testimony that secured a guilty verdict He testified for a total of 18 hours, telling the court about her killing her family, her asking him for help with murdering her sisters, and how Godin had attempted to murder him. After all of this, she was declared guilty and would be tortured before being beheaded. And that was actually, like, the light punishment. Because of the nature of her crime, she also could have been buried alive. I'm not sure which one I would prefer. Probably Beheaded.
0: Yeah, I guess, if I have to go a certain <laughs> way. I mean, I'm very against suffering, so... True. Yeah. Um. So her
1: confessor was a Jesuit priest named Edme Pirot, who was supposedly very sensitive and fainted at the sight of blood. So she really lucked out there. Um, she also looked, like, pretty bad at that point. She was very thin, very worn down. So Edme just wanted her to repent, and she did and confessing to the court in a likely attempt to avoid any torture was probably, you know, what she was going for, but they were still worried that Marie had co-conspirators that would continue poisoning after her death, so this confession was not enough. So they tortured her by stripping her naked, they bent her over, and dumped water down her throat. She refused to confess, saying she would not lie, and after 4.5 hours of torture, they gave up, If she had any secrets, they were going to follow her to her grave. So, again, the whole Netflix thing, I think, would have been really cool back then, but a whole crowd, (laughs) like everyone in the city, came to watch her execution because probably what else was there to do? Um, Stories of Marie's murder spread quickly throughout the city. If a beautiful, wealthy woman was capable of such horrendous crimes, then no one was safe after Uh her (laughs) execution well no like anyone could be a victim of anyone not like oh nobles can not aren't able to get away with stuff anymore no 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 Um, but after her execution her body was thrown into the fire and her ashes spread through the air of the city and I thought about making some poetic reference to her ashes spreading through like rumors in the town or like whatever but I, I couldn't I couldn't think of anything poetic
0: enough Aww.
1: and that's the story of Marie
0: Madeleine de Aubrey god these poisoning poisoners in a way because it was so long I just feel like people back then like what else was there to do like you could make bread you could go to church and then you could commit crimes like I don't <laughs> cost of admission for a living back then I don't know Also,
1: they, I feel like they were so desensitized to things if they're just like, "Mm, hey, want to catch that execution this weekend? Yeah, let's go meet up at the town square and watch someone get their head chopped off. It reminded me of um, the Great, again. Just all of this reminds me of the Great when they were like torturing everyone to figure out who had, was it who had poisoned or who had killed somebody? I don't know. But they were just like ripping out their toenails and like dropping bricks out of the (laughs) ceiling onto people's heads. Or, like, in sticking the their faces in with electric eels. Oh I hate it. Oh, my God. I feel like there's already so much, like, gross stuff happening back then because <laughs> they didn't have adequate medical care. Like, do you really need to bring that on yourselves?
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, like, stuff like that is depicted as, like, like, in addition to, you know, people coming out and, like, watching it if it's done in a public setting. I feel like in shows, that's always depicted as almost just, like, a source of, like, sport. For like the nobles, and so I'm like, we're all noble people sociopaths, or what? Based on everything I've seen in the Great, yes,
1: yes, they were. At oh least my God, but I they only cut those people's how. heads off. Oh, it's so gross! I can't do it. I can't. I would be too grossed out. I couldn't live in those days. Well, I wouldn't be able to see anything anyway because Same. my eyes are terrible, or and I probably would have died from struck throat at a young age. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases.
0: We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24 seven and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor.
1: You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink
0: Collar, a True Crime Podcast.